This is the Untitled Female Podcast, and today I'm speaking with Dana Maloney. Hi, so I'm very excited about this conversation. It's a personal one. It's one of those where I listen back and I think, ooh, should I be saying that? And I should because the whole premise and point of the Untitled Female Project is for me to tell my story and speak my truth and champion flaws. So I do this quite a bit here. And it's kind of, it makes sense as to why, because Dana Maloney is a therapist. She's actually the good enough therapist and she practices in cognitive behavioral therapy. And for me, it was definitely a dream conversation because I got to speak with her about all these things that I think about and ask her questions and she could actually give me answers. So this is an extremely educational conversation. Beyond that, because she's a therapist and because she's good at what she does, usually I control the conversation, but she found ways to get me to talk about things. And her and I talked about this after. She said, I'm sorry to make you talk about some of the stuff I did, but I'm in control of what I'm saying. So I've, I've, I gave that information up for sure. But I think it's this is an important conversation for anyone who wants to learn. For anyone who wants to hear about people who have dealt with mental illness or any physical or mental ailments and how to dig yourself out of that space. So I'm going to get to the intro. If you don't want to listen to the intro, just skip over to the the next time you hear the music and that's where the conversation will begin. But here's what you need to know about Dana Maloney. From a young age, she never felt good enough. She was diagnosed with chronic migraine syndrome, which resulted in social anxiety. By the age of 22, it got so bad that she spent 90% of her time in bed. Without a light at the end of the tunnel, her husband asked that they make a change. So they moved to California and she met a therapist who would forever change her life. This therapist introduced her to cognitive behavioral therapy. So not only did it save her, it gave her a new purpose and meaning. Through the experience of learning this new language, Dana was able to find tools which would help her control some of the pain she was experiencing. The best part about it is that it was working. And because of that, she finally saw the light. She finally felt like there was hope for change. Without giving away too much of the conversation, Dana's career trajectory is quite remarkable. Her chance meeting with a therapist called John further pushed her into trusting in her skills and in her beliefs and eventually led her to becoming a therapist herself. We talk a lot about the idea of good enough. After all, that is the name of her business, but more importantly, it is something that every single one of us feels. As I mentioned, this was a dream conversation for me. Not only did I learn so much from Dana, I was able to share some of my deeply painful and personal experiences, which means that Dana is more than a good enough therapist. She is amazing. I feel like you will feel the same after listening to our conversation. Here we go. it's kind of important for me to kind of show you where I ended up based on kind of the struggles that I had. So who I am now is I got my master's in marriage and family therapy, opened up a little practice called Good Enough Therapist. So let me explain how I got there. Wasn't an easy road. So when I was 12, I was diagnosed with a, with chronic daily migraine syndrome. And that is really hard. It's actually different than just some migraines. It's kind of this incessant pain that happens a lot Mm -hmm. all the time pretty much Mm -hmm. but somehow I was able to push through it I I graduated from high school I still had it but again it it wasn't debilitating most of the time got to college got through college mostly (laughs) but again it wasn't debilitating at the time and when I turned about 22 
it got so bad that I spent 90% of my time in bed. And I'm not exaggerating. I mean, for maybe even about three years, Mm -hmm. I was so hopeless because that's what happens when you feel like helpless. When you feel like you can't do anything about your situation, you feel like it's never going to get better. You're never going to get out of it. Mm -hmm. I tried everything Western medicine had to offer. I was on a million different meds. I had surgeries and injections and I had hospital stays, inpatient treatments. I mean, my life felt like I was at doctors and hospitals and things of that nature. And I get it. I mean, my we didn't know any other way and we trusted these doctors. When they said, this is the treatment, I know what's going on. I mean, I went to this place called Jefferson Headache Clinic in Philadelphia and they promised me um, and it never worked out. And so I'll never forget, my husband told me one day, he said, Dana, and I have this amazing husband. I've been with him now for like 11 years. And so he said, Dana, and he started crying. You're, you're not living. You're just existing. And then he said, we need a change. We need, a, we need to change our approach and we need to change. Mm-hmm. And so what that meant was that we were going to go out to California. Okay. Somewhere that is entirely, obviously so far away from Philadelphia, where I was mm-hmm. to kind of get out of that system that those places that that made me feel like I was sick. Like I felt like this, my identity was wrapped up in this illness. Mm -hmm. And so when I went out to California, which is very progressive compared to Philadelphia, anywhere on the East Coast, I found this amazing marriage and family therapist. And she was unlike any therapist I'd ever had. I, I had some therapists that were like very clinical. It felt like a doctor's office. So when I went to this woman, she pretty much cursed every other word. She gave me so much advice. And she said to me, Dana, get off those fucking meds. And she said, and we're going to start doing something called cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's CBT. And I knew what CBT was, but I, I didn't really experience it over in the, on the East Coast. And what she said to me was, I don't want you to be put off by this. It is like learning a language. Mm-hmm. You're going to have homework. You're going to have to learn how to, how to translate. You're going to become fluent. And it's going to take a long time. And I was like, I don't know if I can do it. And she said, what the fuck else do you have to do? The only answer I could give her was, uh, I don't have anything better to do. Right. And so what she said to me was, this is a different approach, and I think that you can get better based on this. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I believed her. And kind of with that belief came that itsy-bitsy bit of hope, right? That hope that I had lost for so long. And with that hope came motivation. And with that motivation came hard work. And with that hard work came results. Mm-hmm. And now I had more hope. And with that more hope, I had more motivation and then harder work and then bigger results. And so I was on this kind of upward trajectory and I, and I started to, to be less in pain. And the truth is, is that the pain never really went away. It was really about redirecting my attention. What she had me realize was I can be in pain, but I can also be okay, mm. right? I can, I can be in pain, but I, but I control my suffering. So all of a sudden I felt like I was in control. I felt like, okay, well, there's something to this CBT process because all of a sudden my perspective has changed Mm -hmm. and I feel empowered. I feel like I can do this and I feel like I have something to give. And so I ended up getting my, um, a certification in addiction counseling, procured uh, an internship at one of these fancy rehabs in Malibu Mm -hmm. and worked there for about a year, met this other guy who became my mentor. His name was John. He ran a group called Transparency three times a week. And he like kind of took me under his wing and, and let me sit in and then finally let me facilitate and then do individual sessions with clients. 
And I just had so much to learn from him. And then we would talk on our own, and he would really ask me and teach me. And one thing he said to me, and this was one thing that I think was such a pivotal moment that kind of determined the trajectory Mm -hmm. of my life. He said, Dana, you have to lead with your story. Your story is what's going to make you a good therapist. Mm. He said, you can learn the foundations, you can learn the theories, and and you will. I know you will. But your story is what's going to make you good. And so that kind of carried with me. And so I went, I ended up going to the same grad program that he had gone to like 10 years earlier. Mm-hmm. Loved every minute of it. Then I'm, you know, opened up this disruptive therapy practice through that. I mean, I have a million questions after that. Um, uh-huh. So if, if I'm to kind of compartmentalize all that you've just said, there's a few things that we can, where we can go. One of the things is the idea that as a patient or somebody who is sick, at a certain point, you get to a place where you don't trust your own body anymore right. because it keeps failing you. And so there's this disassociation that happens. You kind of are separated from your body. Mm-hmm. And then in those spaces, you feel so vulnerable and so helpless and hopeless. As you said, you rely mm-hmm. on people who have an education and a degree or whatever it is and, and are experts in their field. And I'm I'm curious, as you mentioned, that there was medicine, there were doctors, and it was just that one woman who basically told you that you needed to make a change. Mm. I'm curious, like, what was it specifically about her or the way that she said it? Mm -hmm. Why this specific doctor? What was that message that really resonated for you? It's a really good question. So, and some of it I can't tell you exactly, Mm -hmm. but, but the things I can put my, you know, finger on are the fact that A, she was... She was collaborative. So she would give me some insights into her own life. Mm-hmm. When I was in therapy before, like I felt like I was standing there naked and I had somebody looking at me, mm-hmm. um, trying to analyze me fully clothed. Mm-hmm. So I, I really felt like she was naked there with me, if that, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, that was really helpful because when I was in these clinical settings and I didn't know anything about a therapist, I'd feel so disconnected. And so that connected mm-hmm. me. The other thing that connected me was this CBT thing. She was an expert in it and she knew what it can help. Mm -hmm. And for some reason I believed her. And I think the reason why I believed her was was because she was unlike any therapist I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. She was like rough around the edges. You could feel like she had lived like a hard life even. She was probably in her 50s. Like she hadn't been that her whole life, right? This is through her own experiences she she got there. Mm -hmm. And she didn't didn't give a shit about the roles, right? She she would be hard on me. Whether or not it was her, it was just that I, I felt hope that there was something else out there. Mm-hmm. I love that on top of the fact that, you know, there's a website, there's also this blog that, that you create. It tells these stories, these truth stories. Mm. One of the things I read, your relationship with your brother. Mm. The chip on the chip on my shoulder. Yes. Maybe. Yes. And and I and I was curious kind of to speak a little bit about that because in regards to you being the good enough therapist, almost felt like you you never felt like you were good enough. Yep. Can you explain can you talk a little bit about your relationship with your brother and, and how that Yeah, absolutely. So my brother Jason, two years older than me, he was and I'm not just saying this because people call smart people geniuses. Like he skipped grades. He went to Princeton undergrad. He went to Harvard Law, gave the commencement speech alongside Alec Baldwin and at Harvard Law. In high school, I was two years younger than him. So I'd have to watch him get every single academic award. I'd have to watch him just, just be this kind of the center of, of everything and have, oh, who's Jason Harrell? Oh, that's the smart one. Mm. Um, who's Dana? Oh, that's his sister. Not as smart right? Mm-hmm. That crippled me a lot actually growing up. And I think that contributed to the, to the migraines actually, mm-hmm. because I didn't feel good enough. And that became ingrained in my core belief system. I hated my brother. 
I was, I was so mean to my brother. And so I kicked my ass in terms of doing work and, and working hard. And I got in somehow to the University of Pennsylvania, the Ivy League school. Mm-hmm. And looking back, though, I, I really am able to to link the two, right? Like I wouldn't have worked, I wouldn't have pushed myself as much if it weren't for him, mm-hmm. right? If, if everything, if I felt good enough already, I would have just stopped. And the truth is, is that not feeling good enough, obviously was a really big problem for me growing up. But then going through that, breaking that down, understanding that kind of made me realize that a lot of the struggles that we have we can use. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's use that to fuel us. Mm-hmm. Let's use those, the, the struggle with, you know, my migraines and, and the knowledge that I have now to fuel me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like we can do that a lot with, with the challenges that we have. This t- ties in a little bit because I was going to ask about specifically your migraines, right? So mm-hmm. I, I've read and I've, and I've worked with like energy healers and stuff like that, where a lot of the pain and, and trauma that we hold um, manifests itself into physical ailments. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned just now, you think a little bit because of how you felt not good enough with your brother that they might have contributed to your headaches. I'm wondering to whom were you not good enough originally? The, the pressure I was was me. I put it on myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 my parents, you know, they would they would do their best. I mean, they would actually overcompensate and not congratulate my brother on on doing well, but congratulate me on getting a B or, you know, and not even say anything about his A. Mm-hmm. They made a, a conscious effort for that. Mm-hmm. Kind of told me that it didn't matter what school I went to and, and I'm, you know, really smart. And I guess none of that mattered because all I wanted to do was be good enough. And if I wasn't perfect, to me, Jason was perfect. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be that. And if I wasn't that, I wasn't good enough. Right. And the problem with that is that that became my core belief system, which means that's kind of how I operated in the world. Right. So, all of my thoughts, all of my feelings, and all of my behaviors came from that mindset. Mm-hmm. So my thoughts were distorted based on that. I'm not good enough, but I'm also not capable. I'm also not smart enough. I'm also not, you know, there are all these things that you can kind of keep telling yourself that you can start to believe, mm-hmm. even though they're coming from this, this kind of irrational core belief system. Right. And so that's what CBT is. We break down those those core belief systems that kind of shift our perspective. So it's basically, it's this narrative that you've created for yourself and eventually becomes who you are. Yes. I'm assuming, and you please correct me if I'm wrong, that reversing that is taking what you feel is not good enough and practicing the good that you want to, to kind of change your thought process, right? And, and to create a new belief system of who you want to be. Is it who you want to be? Can you, can you walk me through how you can? Yeah. That's, that's honestly really close. So what cognitive behavior is, right? So let's use the example of I'm not good enough. So we develop these core belief systems and it doesn't matter why. Like it, it's ingrained and for whatever reason, we don't even have to try to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. And that's what CBT is. It's moving forward. It's skills-based. Again, so what happens is, is that since everything is linked, I'm going to start seeing the world through the lens of I'm not good enough right? My thoughts are going to be, be through that lens. Mm-hmm. My behaviors are going to be through that lens. Mm-hmm. My feelings are going to be through that lens. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is to just kind of, what, keep reminding yourself that, what exactly were you, were you saying again? Basically, if those, are, if those are my mantras, I need to shift and break that and create new mantras for myself. Okay. That, and that's a really good, another thing that I actually really like, and we could talk about 
But what this is, is that you learn those cognitive distortions, the ones that you're talking about, right? That 10, those 10 common ones, Mm -hmm. which include things that all of us do. Mm -hmm. Like we do black and white thinking, like I'm all good or I'm all bad. I'm a failure or I'm a success. I should be this and I should be doing that. So a lot of us should all over ourselves, but that is a distortion. So what we do is, and the reason why it's like a language is what we do is we learn them and we learn them so well that we start to identify when they come up. So once they come up in our minds and they're so automatic, so you're not going to be good at it first, Mm -hmm. but once they come up in your mind and you notice that you're being black and white, you're like, okay, well, that's a distortion, right? That's coming from, I'm not good enough. So since that's a distortion, let me look at it objectively. Let me test reality. So I have the thought of, I'm not attractive, okay? A lot of people have that. I'm not attractive. Mm -hmm. And that's just the thought. So if I call it out and I say, that's a distortion. Well, let's look at the evidence. Have I ever been told that? No. Is there a real reason for it? No. My point is, is that you start to test reality. Mm -hmm. And maybe that wasn't such a good example because we have some, we have a lot of just random thoughts that come up. What I typically have found in working with therapists is... Let's find out why. And, and why is a great thing for an, for an analytical mind like mine, why is a great thing. But for an ad- analytical mind like mine, why is a terrible thing? Because I can be stuck in wondering why forever and never get there. The reason why the why is so like I don't go there. Sometimes I do because people want to know why. Because it's so irrational. Mm-hmm. A lot of our thoughts, we try to make sense of them. We're like, well, why do I have this? And it's like, why do I have this thought that seems so silly? Mm-hmm. It's just anxiety and, and, you know, the way we think sometimes we just can't make sense of it, mm-hmm. except if you look at that core belief system, right? Right. And so the goal of CBT is to shift that core belief system of I'm not good enough to I am good enough. Mm-hmm. And again, so the way we do it is we look at these thoughts when they come up. And then what we do is we decide if they're real or not. Mm-hmm. And then usually they're distortions, right? Because if they're on that piece of paper, they're distortions. Mm-hmm. Then we reframe. We reframe to something that's more useful, something that's more accurate. Mm-hmm. We, we pretty much gain evidence to create a hypothesis, right? So you would never, in science, you would never prove something without having the data to collect the evidence. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what it is. And the reason why I actually think if, you, if you're an analytical mind, and I actually am pretty similar, this is the only evidence-based treatment out there. I mean, there's a hundred different theories, narr- narrative therapy, existentialist therapy, a million other ways um, that people practice. And this is the only evidence-based treatment for long-term change in terms of switching perspectives and things like that. Mm-hmm. Here's here's one thing that I would say about that. Um, okay. To me, that's... It, it's a practical way of looking at things, which is great because a lot of the times our emotions get the best of us. And I think that that cloudiness comes in. The one thing that I would say is there has been this kind of surge of motivational speakers and and positive thinkers and, and all the stuff where, where it, it is the affirmations and everything. It's great. But I feel that a lot of it is allowing kind of this bullshit, a non bullshit filter Um, Meaning, no, that's not what I'm trying to say. It is, it's like a bullshit idea where it's like, just think positive, have these affirmations, change the way your mind is thinking. And it's like, people will need more of a a to-do list, a a checklist of what you do, right? Which Mm -hmm. still your, the way that you work is probably, probably produces better results. Oh yeah. And fast results because Mm -hmm. it's that same thing where it's almost like an aha moment when you see, oh my God, I'm doing all these. 
Like these are distortions. Mm -hmm. And then you start to notice them when Mm -hmm. they come up and you start to challenge them. And you're like, oh my God, I'm seeing some progress. And it it gets people excited and motivated because when you see that little bit of progress, you're like, okay, now I'm hyped and I'm motivated and I want to keep going. Right. As we add on the negative, we Mm. can add on the positive. Yes. You know what I mean? So like the not good enough, it's like a trickle effect, you know? Exactly. I wanted you to talk a little bit about social anxiety. And I'm wondering what your experience of it was like, how you've been able to, I'm assuming you have not been able to completely rid yourself of it, but your mm-hmm. mechanism. So if you can talk a little bit about that. Okay, so social anxiety is a is an interesting form of anxiety because I think a lot of it has to do with the anticipation. Mm-hmm. Um, do you struggle with social anxiety sometimes or no? I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't think so. So I think you would know. Yeah. I get excited for situations where I don't know somebody or there's, Mm. and it's probably based on because I move so many times in my life. Exactly. I had no choice but to walk into a new school every year and say, what's up? I'm new. Mm. (laughs) Let's get things moving, you know, but it might've been different if, if that were, you know, if I had social anxiety. So what you just said is exactly the treatment for it because that is exposure therapy. Mm. When we have these fears of being I wish it wasn't like this all the time. Phobias are like this. And it's kind of like a phobia. You know what I mean? Like being around crowds, being speaking and things like that. And part of CBT is there's something called exposure therapy, right? So like if you are scared of something, you have to sit in the discomfort. You have to push through the discomfort. And each time you do it, it gets easier and easier and easier. And in your case, you had to. Mm -hmm. Like you had no other choice. Right. And so it makes it kind of difficult for people who do have a choice. And so for people who do have a choice, sometimes they choose to just not participate. Mm -hmm. And so the only thing to do, and I wish it was different. I really do. Um, I wish there was a quicker fix, but it is to push yourself and then realize time after time how you're surviving, how it wasn't as bad as you thought it was. Mm -hmm. And then, and that's kind of how to get over that. Is it something that is based on trauma where once you've put yourself out so much you did and it was so painful that it's a defense mechanism in a way or no? You know, that's an interesting question. I think it's one of those things that it has to do with self-confidence. Mm-hmm. So if that kind of situation made someone really deflated, then yeah, for sure. Cause I never had social anxiety until I, I stayed in bed for years, isolated. Mm. I didn't have that practice. I didn't have that, that confidence to talk to people. I'm not a therapist, but in knowing your story, it, it makes sense that when you, your self-esteem probably is shot mm. as a human being, when you, your body keeps failing you and you don't know what's wrong mm. um, and you don't know how to fix it. And then you do find yourself isolated. Mm. You know, at a certain point, I think when a person's sick, you almost feel needy. Oh, yeah. You know, you feel like you're complicating everyone's life, but it's not your fault. I know. But it, it feels like your fault. It does. So this, I would understand the social anxiety because it's comfortable to just stay in your space and feel like I don't want to burden anyone with my problem anymore. Exactly. Yeah. So have you experienced that too, just in, in life or, you know, have you ever felt like a burden? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, I, I suffer as we talked about earlier with, with my eating disorder, um, I think in, in that space, it's, you know, when, when you go into treatment and you're not ready and then you come back into the world and you think you're still invincible right. and you go back to treatment and when you repeat those things, you know, your loved ones and your close family friends are like, when are you going to fucking get it? I know. 
I think the way that I've experienced the, the being a burden, of course, it's difficult for my family and my close friends to deal with it, to see me basically killing myself very slowly. It's now a burden in the sense where during my recovery, when I need that support system more than anything, it feels that many of them are not there anymore. Um, it's like the boy who cried wolf by the third time everyone's like, all right, fuck off. We don't care anymore. You know? Yeah. Like how many times? Yeah. I totally get it. So I think sickness in any way, you know, I had a friend battling with, with cancer and it's, Mm -hmm. it, and I think that's a thing where cancer feels a little bit more easily discussed, you know, and still Mm -hmm. slightly people are ashamed or shameful or, you know, they hide the illness, mental health, mental illness, People just don't talk about it as much. Um, This is a very long segue into a a conversation that you and I have been having um, offline a little bit um, in terms Mm. of our our education system, because I do think, I think it has gotten better in the last decade or so where people are starting to talk about, you know, mental health and and allowing us faithful people to talk about it. But I do think it starts with our youth. Mm. And I was really interested in that you mentioned that you worked with children. That's a space that I really don't understand. I'm super curious. And could you talk a little bit about that? I worked with elementary school children, Mm -hmm. um, K through five. And so I had about six kids that I saw every single week. Mm -hmm. How do you approach therapy with somebody who's, you know, five years old, you do something called play therapy, Mm -hmm. but you also have to kind of disguise some skills that you want them to learn. Right. Mm -hmm. And, And so that's what we did. We tried to work on feelings, identifying feelings, Okay, because once a person can identify feelings, then they kind of have a little bit more control and it's something that they bring with them throughout life, right? Mm. And, and it also creates some sort of empathy because they have this, this self-awareness. They start through time, they start to have this self-awareness so they understand kind of what others, what it looks like with other people, when mm-hmm. other people are scared, when other people are angry. Um, and it creates this kind of ability to kind of allow yourself to be vulnerable because a lot of these feelings are vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So I had so many different toys that I had to buy actually. Mm -hmm. And so every, every session we would start out with this thing called Kamochi and they all loved Kamochi so much. And it came with these, with these little faces that would say this. Okay. And this means jealous. This one means love. And, And so I would spread it out all over for them and they would put what they were feeling inside Kamochi's pouch. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. And so that allowed them to kind of understand what these emotions are, mm-hmm. right? And, it, and it, it made it, it normalized it for them. And I think the important thing that we can do at, at an early, early age with kids is to normalize these things, is to normalize feelings, is speaking your feelings, mm-hmm. to normalize feeling vulnerable, to encourage them to do this kind of thing. Because mm-hmm. the thing about, about a young person's brain, and actually we all have a brain like this, is that they're plastic, right? It's called neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. It's how we are able to carve out new pathways. So a lot of us, when we're really set in a certain habit, we have some very deep pathway that we've carved out into our brain. But in order to break that habit, you have to kind of disrupt that and, and start a new one and start mm-hmm. a new kind of pathway. And so kids, they haven't, ha- they, they haven't carved out these really hard pathways yet. So this is going to become one of those things that, they, that just is, is ingrained in them. And if we do that with all the students, then this is how they're going to go through the world, you know, knowing that I have to say my feelings. I have to check in with my feelings. And now I can work in groups better. I'm stronger academically because I know how to kind of deal with these emotions and these, these feelings. Mm-hmm. And so there's actually a lot of evidence out there that says that this kind of learning about emotional intelligence 
um, learning about feelings and being vulnerable affects performance in academia. Yeah, and I'm sure in a child's well-being overall. I'm curious also to know what your thoughts are on girls and boys hitting puberty. You know, I can tell you through my experience, um, I had very overprotective parents. I was very sheltered. I didn't know what was happening with my body when puberty hit. And I didn't know how to deal with these you know, hormonal changes that were happening, which were causing my emotions to go in all different ways. Felt very out of place, lonely, and different and bullied by other girls my age. And I didn't have a counselor at school then. And I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. How do we create a space for teenagers? Where do they go to deal with this? Yeah, I mean, this is, I think you answered some of it, which is have people available. Mm -hmm. right? Have counselors available and make it mandatory, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. The other idea, and look, we all have health and sex education and we're like, oh, I don't know, whatever. Like, it's fine. It's funny. Something in what we did in my master's program was that, and I, I get that it's different, is that we were required, we had a class called group dynamics and we were required to have our own about seven person process group, meaning it's a therapeutic group and it's confidential. It was just about supporting each other. Mm -hmm. I've always thought that would be a cool thing to have, right? To be broken down into these, these, these groups and to be able to kind of really talk about what they're feeling and things mm -hmm. like that. Other things, and obviously I know you, you, I think you mentioned this before, is education. You know, we learn about science and what goes on in the brain in terms of pretty much everything, right? I, I wonder why we can't have something that kind of shows and displays what goes on in the brain of somebody who has mental illness mm -hmm. and to kind of create that awareness and support. I mean, maybe you have better ideas. Like this is one of the things where I can't say definitively, like, what can we do? It's a problem. It's a real problem though. Well, you know, I think that's why it's good that we have these types of conversations. Badass therapist. How did we get to there? Okay. So this is kind of a funny, weird story. About a year into my program, it was a two-year uh, psych program for marriage and family therapy. And about a year into it, we had a lot of reading. And so one of the teachers, I don't remember who, but she handed all of us this handout that was like an article. And she was like, you can read it, it's interesting, or you cannot read it, we're not going to talk about it. And so most of us were like, fuck that, right? Like we have too much reading. But for some reason this day, I was attracted to this one article and it was about power posing. And it's when we, when we kind of get ourselves into these powerful positions and it kind of engenders this feeling of power, mm -hmm. right? And it doesn't always happen right away, but it communicates to ourselves that we are open, we are powerful, we're empowered. I didn't tell anybody, but I really liked it. And I started doing it for about a year. Every single morning, I was just like this. I stood there. And then for some reason, and you kind of touched on affirmations, right? About telling ourselves over and over again, some of these qualities that we want that are aspirational, but that are inside and we haven't seen mm -hmm. lately, right? That we want to bring out. I remember I was in this class called, it was sexuality. It was a really fun class. All of a sudden I got this, um, this scene from the movie Cool Runnings in my head. Do you remember that movie? Mm -hmm. It's for, for anyone who doesn't remember it, it's this, uh, it's this really silly, like, uh, movie with, with John Candy where there's this like Jamaican bobsled team with like yeah. four people from Jamaica. Never, never seen snow before. And so there's this one kind of puny member of the group and he's kind of being picked on. So he runs into the bathroom. It's at this bar and there's more of like a brawny one. And his name is Yul Brenner. And he's like the one that like, you know, he's scary. Mm -hmm. And so he steps into the bathroom with, with Junior. And he, he puts him in the mirror and he, and he walks right behind him and he says, do you know what I see? 
And Junior goes, no. And he goes, I see pride. I see power. I see a badass mother who won't take no crap off of nobody. And then he goes, Junior, say it. And they keep saying it together, louder and louder. I see pride. I see power. I see a badass mother who won't take no crap off of nobody. And I figured that. I was like, that's kind of like, those are kind of like positive aff- affirmations, right? Those are telling yourself things to psych you up. And obviously that was exaggerated because it was a movie. That kind of reminded me and I was like, well, why don't I add that to my, to my power posing in the morning? Mm-hmm. And I love the word badass. And so I would do it every single morning. Like I'm a badass because I'm special. I'm a badass because I'm smart, whatever it was that day that I needed. And then I would say, I'm a badass. I'm a badass. I'm good enough. And the reason why this works is because we believe what we tell ourselves over and over again. And and that's why sometimes we get those ingrained core belief systems about not good enough because we're thinking it and we believe our thoughts. And so if we start thinking it, even if we don't believe it, if we start saying it to ourselves, I'm a badass, I'm a badass, I'm a badass, eventually we're going to start to believe it. Mm-hmm. And the, the word badass is really meaningful to me because I feel like it's this like all-encompassing word, right? We all have different definitions of what it means to us, but we all want it. When you mentioned the power posing, even me just practicing it, I, I've, changing the energy of my body makes me feel more grounded mm-hmm. and connected to who I am. And it seems that many conversations that are had amongst women who are trying to make a change in the feminist movement or or supporting the feminist movement is this, you know, obviously lack of equality, but also to have women speak up, you know, Mm -hmm. lean in to, to, to raise up your hand, to ask for what you want. I love that idea, but I think that not everyone has that gusto, you know, not everyone has that support system to be able to say that so I, I love this power posing thing because it can be this own private thing that you do with yourself. And it's just these daily little tiny things where you don't necessarily have to be the guy who runs out on the street and says, this needs to change and I'm going to do it, you know? Yeah. And just be you and yourself and grow that, that power on your own. And I find that very yeah. beautiful and probably helpful. Yeah. It's empowering. Yeah. You know, I think in listening to this, if someone's listening and they're like, well, what the fuck do I do? How do I help myself? I think that's, that's one, one is the power posing Two, I think is even in having a conversation with a friend or somebody that you trust, you have, there's gotta be someone that you can find to talk to. Um, Mm. and to maybe try shifting, shifting the way that you think about what you believe for a practical person who doesn't have a therapist or can't afford to see one or whatever it is. It's almost like, writing down a list of the things that you'd want to see yourself as, right? The things mm. that you want to believe and then just saying those on daily on a daily practice. Would that be something, am I accurate in saying that? Yeah, I mean, because that's, that's what's so great is having those tools. Right. You can really just pr- everyday practice. And don't just do it in the morning. Do it if you're nervous about something. Stand in the bathroom. Stand in a bathroom stall. You could find places. But getting that tool like on your tool belt and not – is kind of interesting. Is that what you mean? Yeah, hundred percent. Because yeah. that's the thing. It's it's the the toolbox, the tool belt. It's these these things that we can do. What's your action right now? And that's that's a very simple thing. You don't need money. You don't need don't need money. Access. You don't need anything. It's just you and and you know just doing it once a day is is good enough. It's um, good enough. <laughs> <laughs> Real quick, actually, this this is very important. I think social media. 
I recently wrote a blog post about my friend said that 99% of social media is showing the 10% glamorous side while hiding the 99 or 90% of your truth mm-hmm. in a world where we have such an, you know, impressionable youth. I mean, the young mind, as you said, neuroplasticity, it's like, it's a malleable thing. It's, it's soaking all of these things in and mm-hmm. what have you seen? What are some tools? How can we shift the narrative from this kind of superficial culture to authentic truthfulness? Is it possible? Do you have any thoughts on that? I believe it's possible. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it's going anywhere. So I think that the only way we can kind of combat the situation is to do it up here, mm-hmm. right? To change our image of things. Mm-hmm. But we do have to be intentional about it. And honestly, for a lack of a better word, and excuse my language, like social media is fucking with us. Mm-hmm. And technology is so great when it provides access to things that we haven't had access to, right? Mm-hmm. But this is a huge, I mean, this is this probably one of the biggest things that's adding to, that's feeding that I'm not good enough mm. core belief system. Like it's just feeding it. The, the wonderful thing about my job is that I wouldn't even say that people are giving 10%. I would say people are giving 1% mm. of, of who they are in these pictures. And so the thing that I would say to that is when somebody comes in here, I don't see that because I get to go deeper with them and I get to see the whole story. And what I can say to you is that we all have our shit, okay? There's not one person that's impervious to that. Mm -hmm. The truth is, is that we have to be intentional about not paying attention to it, okay? Because it's everywhere. I'm not saying it is going to go away because it's not, but it has to become background noise. Just as those messages about our bodies, about our what we need to look like. Mm-hmm. It can become a, it can become background noise if we don't pay enough attention to it. But we have to put in the work to do that. And a lot of that can come from cognitive behavioral therapy. And by the way, you can do cognitive behavioral therapy on your own. There's workbooks. There's this handout that you're going to post on your thing. My blog posts. I mean, there's, there's things that can happen. I love the mantra. And I think it's funny, but I think the mantra, everybody has their shit, right. is, is a good one. So when you find yourself saying, Oh, Sarah's so perfect. She has a house. She has a husband. She's a new baby and she's smiling. You know, there's something going on there. She has her shit too. Maybe she's dealing with postpartum depression. Maybe she is having a strained relationship with her husband. Whatever it is, I promise you, everybody has their shit. And I can say that because just because I see it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, you you use the word dangerous. I think that's extremely accurate. Um, Mm. You know, not only is it feeding as we talked about, you know, body image and everything else, I think even in the dating world, you're all in the dating world, assuming that you know somebody without really knowing. So I think in a way it is having more people speak their truth, um, mm-hmm. which leads us nicely into the last few questions, which I ask everybody. The two hashtags that I have, one of them is speak your truth. If you could speak yours, whatever it is. Like in, in, the, in the moment right now or just... Um... Yeah, sure. I mean, if it's in the moment right now or if it's, if it's some, whatever it is that held you back before from being the, the best version of you now, whatever it is. And I love the speak your truth thing now because for, for my whole life, I just really wanted to please people. And more recently, I'm just like, I say no to things I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Like I need to speak my truth. That's not what I want to be doing. Mm-hmm. And I want to live my truth. And I do that with my husband. Like if he sometimes wants to do something that I don't and I'm like, I want to do something else and I need to just be honest. And that, that took some time, but the flaws, and honestly, that came from a self-confidence thing that came from, from me being in bed for so long, I kind of lost it. Mm -hmm. Like I lost this confidence and I, I kind of felt behind. I thought I was a loser. 
seriously, I, I really thought I was a loser and that was, that was that. And so I just tried to please everyone and I, I tried to hide and sometimes I still hide, you know, I, with, sometimes I feel awkward and I don't want to do some, some things. I'm predisposed to anxiety. I just am. My family is. There's some OCD in, in my family. To be candid, I am on a, an antidepressant, mm-hmm. which I know people are scared of. And I, and I really want to be transparent with my clients and, and help them if, if they need it. I'm not a huge proponent of, of meds. Like I, I fear them, but some people just need it. And I do believe that. And so, but the anxiety peaks through, right? Like, and some of the cognitive distortions, like, uh, you know, am I, am I a fraud? You know, am I, am I good enough for Like, am I doing this right? You know, uh, like uh, all these kind of questions that I, that I ask myself, I, I, again, I have the ability to have that, that rumination, that, that hamster wheel that goes on my head and I don't sleep well sometimes. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I'd feel like a fraud is because I feel like I can really kind of hammer these tools into other people. Mm -hmm. And yet, why can't I, why is it a problem for me still? But I think that's the whole good enough thing. And I I can never be perfect. And I, and I want my clients to know that Mm -hmm. it's a struggle and and the self-care is the, you got to do the work so that you keep that kind of at bay. So it's not crippling. It's, it's almost like inevitably, you know, as there are ebbs and flows, you will keep hitting that space of sadness or suffering but it's having a tool box or a tool belt that will help you get back up quicker the next time. Yes. And you'll be okay. <laughs> exactly. And so the more suffering you've been through and the more pain, it's like there, you can really, you, you get that kind of endurance and, and it doesn't hit you as hard, right? They become speed bumps instead of roadblocks, right? Like recently I was diagnosed, well, not that recently, I was diagnosed with epilepsy, which is a part of the migraine, the neurological disorder. And man, I mean, I, I got back into that place, you know, I, I felt helpless and, and I was able to get out of it. And so I guess what, what I'm saying is that life doesn't exist on a smooth plane, right? Mm-hmm. We make progress, we have ups and downs and we, and we have to do our very, very, very best to keep reminding ourselves of that. Mm-hmm. Thank you for saying that for, for, being so candid and honest about what's going on in your life, because I can imagine that that it just takes over you, you know? Yeah. For a little bit. Yeah. Um, but then you move on. It's life, right? Yeah. And you keep it under control, right? You're medicated and it's okay. Yeah. And then, I mean, I assume because you're asking all these questions that you believe in that too, right? You believe in, in, and I saw that you had a Brene Brown quote that you really like about talking. Yeah. Right. About speaking. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful mission for you. I really do. And, it, and that goes with the flaws. You know, it's as soon as we speak about them, they, they kind of lose power. They do lose power. Yeah. Did you have any female role models in your life? I would say, um, and I know this person has a lot of controversy around her, but Lena Dunham, mm. she talks a lot about her mental illness mm-hmm. and that, that, you know, she has she had struggled with OCD her whole life. It's, it's interesting. You said she, there's a lot of controversy around her. There is. I, what's your take on that? <laughs> I think it's, I, I don't, I don't know exactly. I think that first of all, they body shame her a lot. And I, I also think that she's atypical for being, she, she's outspoken and people don't believe in, some people don't even believe in mental, mental illness or, or that kind of thing. I mean, she said she's been depressed since the election. People are like, bullshit get over it do you know what I mean though she does have haters trying to understand 
exactly exactly why. Yeah. I feel that if she had, if she fit into the mold of what is acceptable, worst of all, probably looks wise to speak so candidly about Mm. everything that she goes through and who she is Mm -hmm. and there are flaws, all of a sudden it's like, you know, let's look at the Kardashians and see inside their world because you know, it's this glamorous life, but mm. so yeah, that's an interesting topic that you bring up for sure. Right, but but where's the depth, right? In in the Kardashians. Oh no, that's you know what I mean. Yeah, and and you know what, I have to stop myself. I shouldn't judge that either because I okay. do. I I do judge the fact that there's no depth there. But yes, that's nice of you. I really do. I think that that that's a nice nice thing for you to say. It's just because maybe you respect them as entrepreneurs and that kind of thing. You know, whatever it is, I think to me again, you know, I, I, when I think about feminism, um, Mm. and, and doing research for this project, a lot of times women, instead of saying, well, a man was the reason why I didn't get this job or a man was my, you know, roadblock, it's often women. And so in, in, in realizing that I needed to also be accountable and to stop judging other women for, not being as curious to learn or whatever it is that's their path and that's okay yes. as long as we're not hurting anyone in the mm. process of whatever our life trajectory is then i can't say anything about it i can respect that that's who they are until mm-hmm. they do something you know i will say the one thing that really really struck me was before the met gala kim kardashian had tweeted about and i don't follow her but this was something that was talked about it'd be nice if I had the stomach flu before the med gala insinuating that if she could get sick she'd lose some weight someone with for me who deals with an eating disorder and knows how impressionable women are you can't be saying you can't say that you know so so in, in that in that space what was the lesson that took you the longest to learn the lesson that took me the longest to learn I definitely mentioned it and it's that medication is not the cure for everything mm. there's a lot of diagnoses that need medication one of them being bipolar, so, so a lot of times panic disorder. There are some, again, there's some examples that really truly need to be medicated. Depression. Mm-hmm. It's never going to be everything. Right. Right? And so it can help. It can bolster you up so that you can do the work. But, geez, I spent 10 years on so many meds. I actually, I counted them the other day because I was doing a, a blog article, and I'm actually writing a book. I think it was something like 48 medications something like that. Wow. And, and I was on a mixture of like six at a time and like, I, I wasn't me, you know, I didn't know what the side of, I didn't, I couldn't tell the difference between side effects and what was really going on in my body. So when you eventually got off of those, what, how are you feeling? Do you, do you have to relearn who you are again? I think you just start to feel like yourself. It's like a cloud, like just lifts huh. and like, and I did it while I was doing the work. So I was already encouraged. Right. Um, I was already feeling like, fire you know mm-hmm. I was like and so I think that when I got off them it was a huge relief mm-hmm. but as I said I, I after that I did go on something mm-hmm. I went on one more thing and I think that that's been it's just a low dose and I think that that's been really helpful for me mm-hmm. again I don't advocate meds but sometimes sometimes they you know you need them right it's a genetic thing for me what would be advice you'd give to your younger self I would say wear sunscreen mm-hmm. for sure I would say maybe break some rules, break, break a few more rules. Oh, I would learn mindfulness at a young age. And I think that can be incorporated in schools too, mm-hmm. learning mindfulness. Mm-hmm. 
What about you now would surprise your younger self? That I speak up, that I don't shy away from things like this. You know, I've spoken on a few panels and, and done a few speaking engagements and boy, did I need my power posing then, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but I did it. I did it. Um, and just that, I mean, there was a period of time where I had no idea if I was going to finish college or if I would even have a career. So the fact that I have a career, I'm like, that's something. You're a badass. Yeah. I'm a badass and you're a badass, <laughs> right? We'll get there. We'll get there. No, you have to say yes. Yep. You have to take a compliment. That's a big one. <laughs> I think the other things I, I wanted to ask, I, we kind of talked about this a little bit, like the lessons you'd want to impart to a younger generation. I think a lot of, um, unless you wanted to add something to that, I think we covered a lot there, but unless you thought to feel that there's something else we were missing. What I would say, and we have talked a lot about it. What I would say is I think that starting from the bottom is a good thing. For me, learning by doing is something that you have to kind of earn. I think a lot of new millennials now think that they should be kind of have all these skill sets and, and try to shoot for their dreams automatically and feel like they don't need to kind of start from the bottom. Mm -hmm. I'd say try to start from the bottom. You'll be better at what you do. Yeah. I would also say that to remain curious, to ask questions, yeah. always ask questions and to be a beginner, allow people to teach you, like remain teachable. And, so, and have a growth mindset. Finally, I wanted to ask, I didn't include this in, in my email, but what I did in this questionnaire that I sent out to a bunch of friends, um, and now it's available to anyone who wants it. The last question I, it was, Alianka, you really should be asking this. What do you feel I really should be asking? Wow. First of all, I'm so impressed with this interview. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Just the fact that I love that it's not just me talking. So I think you did a great job with that. Thank okay, you. So I wish... I wish you asked me or that you should ask everybody, what is your passion? What is your purpose? Mm. What, I, honestly, I, I'd have to think about that one. What, what are some things that people said? Uh, because in the questionnaire, I talked a lot about dating and men and, and sex and a lot of different things, but a lot of it was the thing that really spiked everybody was it the body image. One of the questions was what is good enough with your body and nobody can mm positive but the other one was what do we most misunderstand about men and what mm -hmm. do men most misunderstand about us and so one of the the suggestions was how can we teach men the idea of this modern day feminism because some are arguing to me that actually men are very curious to learn about women but we just oftentimes when they show curiosity kind of shut them down and say like just stick to what you know, you know? Mm. Um, so I think that's something that I would really love to understand mm. and, and also mm -hmm. it's like a toolbox of, of how, how can we educate men about women in a mm -hmm. positive way as well? Um, so that was a suggestion. That's a good one. I think it's a good one. That wouldn't apply to me, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, what I would say, especially because of the economic climate, what I would say is According to, like, obviously the definition of feminism, which is what? Just advocating for equal rights between men and women. Yep. Um, and that's pretty simple. What does it mean now? Like, has it changed now? Mm -hmm. um, does, feminism, does feminism mean something different? Yeah. And so, because I was thinking about that. I've thought about that recently. And has it changed for you? Do you feel it's different now? I do, actually. I feel that... There's so much, there's just in my life, since I can remember in my lifetime, I'm 31. There's just so much at stake. 
to be a woman and to have this like kind of threat, we're being threatened, right? Our, our, our rights are being threatened. It feels like more of a crusade now. And it feels like a crusade that is backed by not only women, but by, by male feminists who are understanding what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it means women empowering other women. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, like nothing makes me happier when I see women building each other up. And nothing makes me sadder when, when I see them tearing each other down. Yeah. And so that display, I mean, that women's march, when I watched on, on TV that night about just everybody all over the world, I mean, I was like emotional. Like mm-hmm. I was like, like really overwhelmed actually yeah. to see this kind of feminism. So I think that would be the question that I would ask myself and of others is how can we rid ourselves of our prejudices against other women? You know, interesting. Yes, um, absolutely. And Do you have the answer for that right now or not? Yeah, but you know, it's not an answer. But I think it's a practice, as you said. As we build affirmations right. for ourselves, it's 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 creating that space of of thought, of pause. Um, as I mentioned earlier about the Kardashians, there's no room for judgment there. You know, right? Um, yes. I think those little pauses allow us to not react and mm. to to arrive in a space of love. Yes. You know, when you arrive in a space of love, there's no room for judgment. Right. Um, so it's, it's easier said than done. I, it's, it's a rewiring of my habits and my processes because I, the world that I grew up in, it was all about catty women. So it's just a, it's a daily practice. It is a daily practice. Yeah. And to be intentional about that practice. Yes. 100. So anything else that I missed that you need one lasting thing that you want the universe to know? <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think we're good. I think everything. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll send you the, uh, you know, the, that sheet, the cognitive distortion stuff or any other blog posts or whatever. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And um, I once you have a firmer idea of this book that you're writing mm-hmm. as I, I manifest for a bigger space and in, in interview and, you know, um, hopefully we can sit down in a nice studio by the time your book is done and oh for sure and really talk about that as well so absolutely you're easy to talk to for everything it's I'm proud of you I love your space that you're in and thank you yeah so it feels good finally I'm glad we could do this the two years was worth the wait <laughs> it was and it's so wonderful to see your kind of progression there I mean you just seem so like comfortable in your own skin yeah you know like you're in your element yeah getting there getting there wonderful say, say thank, thank you, you. <laughs> except the combo that's yeah, what i try to keep you. doing thank you <laughs> <laughs> all right well let me know if you need anything else okay we'll do have a right. wonderful day thank you too thank you for more on dana log on to her website goodenoughtherapist.com you can schedule an appointment with her you can read more of the articles on her blog for the articles that we did mention in this conversation you can find those on the show notes of this episode by logging on to uf website and clicking on the podcast tab searching for dana and you'll find that at the bottom of the post for more on us you know where to find us we're always at untitled female on all of social platforms and that's pretty much it i don't have much more to say except for remember you are good enough we'll see you next time